As we discussed last week, just uh, reading the genealogies in the Bible can be a challenge for Christians. But as it turns out, studying them in depth multiplies the challenges, especially when it comes to the genealogies of Genesis. It has commonly been recognized that Moses uses genealogies at certain points to move his narrative account of history forward in time. But it's the question of time that most vexes students of these genealogies. Last week we looked at a relatively straightforward genealogy, tracing the line of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Then at the end of chapter 4, Moses moved back to Adam and Eve and drew attention to their son, Seth. During his lifetime, some of Adam's family began to call upon the name of Yahweh. That is to say, some of Adam's family began to claim the one true God as their own and worship him properly. This served as a wonderful conclusion to the second section of the book of Genesis. Chapter 5 opens the third section of Genesis with a genealogy that covers the whole chapter and concludes with a mysterious narrative that we'll look at next week in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. The fourth section of Genesis will then tell us the story of the great global flood of judgment and the rescue of Noah and his immediate family. The genealogy of Genesis 5 highlights the line of Seth, but Moses backs up to Adam, moves through Seth, and concludes with Noah, ten generations in all. However, what makes this genealogy so challenging is the numbers. Not only are we dealing with a list of names, but Moses has this time included certain specific indicators of the passage of time for each generation. This is unlike any other genealogy known from the ancient world. This is why it makes it so hard for us to get the point. We can get lost in the names and the numbers and the questions about time. We want to know why did he do this, and we want to know what we're supposed to get out of it. What's the point? The numbers have become a storm center of controversy even among conservative creationist Christians. When Moses tells us how many years a particular man lived before he fathered a particular son, what we could call his begetting age, and then tells us how many total years he lived until he died, does Moses intend for us to add up the years so that we might reasonably deduce a date for creation? The label chronogenealogy has been used for this genealogy and the one in Genesis 11 because both lists of names also mention numbers of years measuring time. With these time markers for each generation, the question is also raised as to whether or not these chronogenealogies could possibly include generational gaps. Did Moses intend to skip generations in the list? We know that, he, that the Bible does this sometimes. For example, the genealogy of David, included at the end of the book of Ruth, certainly skips several generations. We also know the book of Matthew, in Jesus' genealogy, skips several generations at certain points. So the question becomes, if Moses skipped generations on purpose, does that mean he doesn't intend for us to produce any calculations based on the numbers he supplied? And how can we know? And as if those questions aren't vexing enough, 
there are huge debates about what the original God-inspired numbers actually were. Should we follow the Hebrew Masoretic text for every number, which is what our English Bibles are based on? Or should we follow the Greek translation, what's often called the Septuagint, abbreviated as the LXX? The Greek translation certainly differs from the Hebrew text in lots of places, and many times the Greek seems to be pretty clearly reflecting the original. The New Testament writers often quote from the Greek translation, even in places where it differs significantly from the Hebrew. With the chronogenealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, the begetting ages of most of the fathers are listed as 100 years older in the Greek. The textual variation issue is vastly more complicated than what I just described, but that's the gist of the issue. If almost all of the fathers were actually 100 years older when the next mentioned son was born than what our English Bibles say, then if we try to do any calculations about the date of creation, the age of the earth, the date of the flood, the date of the Tower of Babel, then we're going to get pretty different answers. If you're interested in such detailed questions, I can happily provide you with a reading list. I will comment on some of these questions, but I'm going to leave open the question of what the original numbers were. We're simply going to follow what we have in our English Bibles for the sake of our message this morning. Now, mostly, this is because I've struggled to decide personally after evaluating a pretty massive amount of information and argumentation in recent days. I lean in a particular direction and have even charted it out to my own general satisfaction. But it seems like all of the various perspectives have unanswered questions and biblical and historical difficulties. Creationist scholars are in the midst of continuing to hash all these matters out based on all the relevant data with publications interacting with each other published within the last five years. This is very much a live question going on right now. But a sermon is not a good context for navigating those issues. And everybody said amen. (laughs) There is a message that God communicated through the genealogy of Genesis 5. And the point of that message is not to tell us the age of the earth. But at the same time, to be faithful readers, we should ask the question, why did God include these time markers How are they functioning? What is the point? Before we press into pursuing the main message of this section of Scripture through exposition, let's consider an example of the repeated pattern and make some observations. So look at Genesis 5, verses 6 through 8. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. First, let's toss out some assumptions that are often made. Moses does not say that Enosh uh, was Seth's firstborn. We know from the narrative that Seth was not Adam's firstborn, but in the genealogy, this is not marked in any way. So I don't think we should assume that the named son is the firstborn. In this genealogy, in fact, I suspect none of them are firstborns. Instead, Moses has selected a particular son who carries forward the lineage as his particular goal is to, set, is to get from Adam to Noah. But he's also got a particular route he wants to travel with certain stops along the way, if you follow the analogy. 
A second assumption that is sometimes made is that the reference to other sons and daughters must be referring to other children being born after the named son. But that is not explicitly stated. Instead, Moses is merely cluing us into the fact that these men produced lots and lots of children, which is understandable considering their long lifespans. In chapter 4, we read about Cain's wife. And it must be that she was one of the daughters of Adam and Eve, who must have been born before Seth. Now, what exactly is being communicated here? The key word translated fathered means he caused a baby to be born. If we ask the question, how does a father cause a baby to be born? Well, there are other words to describe that specific act, but this word traces the result, the birth of the baby. That's the point. Back to the causative action of the father, but the focus is on the birth of the baby. When we think of it this way, he caused a baby to be born, it's possible to recognize a looser use of the term. For example, this same form appears in the genealogy that concludes the book of Ruth. And that genealogy almost certainly contains gaps of generations. So the word could convey the idea of fathering a baby who would then grow up and father children, who would then grow up and father children, and so on and so on, until the named descendant is actually born. Those who see gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 insist that this is the idea Moses intends. But the problem with this view for Genesis 5 and 11 is the timing indicators Moses has included. The meaning of the Hebrew verb does seem to focus on the birth of the child. So, when Genesis 5, 6 says, When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh, it means that Seth was 105 years old when he caused Enosh to be born, and it also means that Enosh was born when Seth was 105 years old. Now, hypothetically, Enosh could be Seth's grandson or great-grandson, but even so, Moses' point is to tell how old the father was when the descendant was born. And when you have a chain linked together like this, I don't see how we can reasonably avoid the implication that Moses really does intend to lay out a tight chronology. And if so, then it is reasonable for his readers to do the math in order to date certain events. But that is not Moses' main point. In order to get Moses' main point, without further ado... Let's begin walking through the passage a bit more systematically. In verses 1 to 8, we get the heading of this new section of Genesis, and we see the transfer of the image. Let's go back to Adam once again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. 
Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Moses refers to a book here. Presumably, Moses is drawing the lineage information from some other document. These ages and names got passed down and written down at some point, and now Moses is including this information as part of his spirit-inspired message for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. The phrase, this is the generations of, serves as a kind of heading throughout the book of Genesis, a heading for each new section. It outlines the book in a certain sense. Immediately, however, Moses refers back to both of the previous two sections. He refers to God's creation of humanity, male and female, in the likeness of God, and God's blessing of humanity, hearkening back to chapter 1. He adds some information that he didn't mention specifically in chapter 1. God named the male and female together Adam, humanity, mankind. Then he recalls the end of chapter 4, referring to Adam's fathering Seth. Now, I draw attention to these details to demonstrate how unified and flowing Moses' writing is in defiance of skeptics who continue to suggest various different authors putting together this book over a long period of time. It shows wondrous evidence of unified production. Curiously, in verse 3, we read about Adam fathering his son Seth in his own likeness after his image, which, of course, reflects God's creation of Adam in his own image and likeness. This suggests that Adam's fathering a son is analogous to God's creation of Adam. This is probably the point that Luke recognized so that in his gospel genealogy of Jesus, he refers to Adam as the son of God which also identifies Jesus at the end of that genealogy as the Son of God. Moses communicates two ideas here. First, as Luke correctly inferred, Adam is, in a proper sense, God's Son. And second, Adam's reflection of God carries on in his Son. In other words, in spite of Adam's change of nature, in spite of Adam's rebellion, he continues to reflect God truly. Thus, it's right to conclude that every human being continues to reflect God in this world. Human rebellion has marred and distorted that reflection, but it is not destroyed and it can be renewed. But Seth is also like Adam, which means he comes into this world as a rebel. One writer speaks of the unfortunate bipolarity in all human beings. Like Adam, Seth is a sinner. Seth is also born outside of Eden and is therefore spiritually dead. Nevertheless, as Eve had said when she named him Seth, Seth has been set, appointed by God as an offspring of Eve to carry on the line of the offspring of the woman that will eventually lead to one particular male descendant who would rescue sinners from the power of sin and overcome the power of death. At the end of verse 5, we get the first drumbeat of death that characterizes this genealogy, and he died. As one writer notices, this is the Bible's first reference to natural death. None of these old guys will make it to a millennium, but the first man gets pretty close. As an aside, I see no reason to question the long lifespans of these men. 
There's no mathematical scheme that suggests some kind of symbolism to the various ages noted. This passage has all the marks of straightforward historical reporting. We glanced at verses 6 to 8 to observe the overall pattern of the bulk of this passage. It will be important to notice where Moses diverges from the pattern. Seth's son is Enosh, a Hebrew word that can generically refer to humanity, a kind of synonym of Adam. Seth likewise lives over nine centuries, but like Adam, he also died. This is the refrain, the repeated line that governs this genealogy, and he died. Thus we see the reign of King Death that Paul saw here, as we looked at a few weeks ago in Romans 5. Let's consider the reign of death as reflected in the rest of the genealogy. Let's press on through verses 9 to 20. Now, before I read these verses, try not to get bogged down in your own reading by the pronunciation of these names. It doesn't matter how you pronounce the names. Really, it doesn't matter how you pronounce them. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. I've suggested that we are reading the continuance of the line of the offspring of the woman. That doesn't mean we should necessarily assume that all of the named individuals and their families necessarily trusted the Lord. In fact, as we'll see in just a moment, Enoch stands out in his relationship with the Lord in such a way that might indicate that the others in this list didn't, in fact, walk with God. Nevertheless, the line of Seth, as opposed to the line of Cain, is where we will find the offspring of the woman, even if it's not every single descendant in the line. Still, all are sinners and all die. The reign of King Death and Queen Sin is on display, even in a genealogy. Here we can also see God's grace, superabounding. Humanity continues to be fruitful and multiply, and that is by God's blessing in spite of King Death and Queen Sin. Canaan's name recalls the name Cain. Spelled different in our English Bibles for some reason, but in Hebrew, it's the same up to the ending. The extra on on the end could be a diminutive ending, so that Enosh named his son Little Cain. It doesn't sound good. <laughs> but then Canaan named his son Mahalalel, which means the praise of God. Notice the ale ending that we talked about last week. Mahalalel named his son Jared, which probably means descent or going down. You can make of that whatever you wish. Jared named his son Hanoch, which is the same name as Cain's son. We bring it over into English as Enoch for some reason. The word means dedication or initiation. 
Did Jared name his son Hanoch in order to dedicate him to the Lord? Or did Jared anticipate his son bringing some new beginning for the family? We'll never know, but we must pause on Enoch and consider what is so different about him. Moses breaks his pattern drastically here. Let's consider Enoch's walking with God in verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Commentator Alan Ross writes, Enoch did not live, he walked with God. Enoch did not die, he walked with God, and he was not. God took him. The only other person in the Old Testament described as walking with God with this precise expression is Noah. Enoch is the seventh name in this genealogy, a point noted by Jude in the New Testament. This seventh generation of human history contains a special individual who apparently exemplified the ideal of human existence. Seventh from Adam in chapter 4 was Lamech, the violent murderer. What a contrast. Presumably, Enoch and Lamech might have been contemporaries, though they may never have crossed paths. Ironically, Enoch's lifespan is the shortest in the list. And to further the irony, Enoch's son Methuselah has the longest lifespan. What does it mean to walk with God? In Genesis 6-9, right before Moses describes Noah as walking with God, he describes him as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So, walking with God has something to do with righteousness. A fellow by the name of Walter Vogels has elaborated beautifully on the meaning of the phrase, and I'd like to quote him at length. He writes, Walking with God suggests that God, too, is walking. Enoch is walking with God. They are walking together. When two people do so, one can expect that the superior one takes the initiative, while the other accompanies him. Consequently, wherever God decides to go, Enoch goes. The expression denotes, therefore, not only a moral, ethical tone, Enoch is a good, perfect, righteous person, but also a more mystical meaning. It implies companionship, closeness, proximity. Enoch is closely united with God. He is God's very intimate friend, and they are always together. I like that picture. However, the New Testament presents an even more intimate conception of our relationship with God. Paul summons believers in Colossians 2.6 to walk in him. Abraham might walk before the Lord in obeying his commands. Enoch walked with God in intimate fellowship. But Christians, we walk in Christ. While Enoch may have had the most intimate relationship with God of anyone on the planet for the first couple thousand years of human history, today, all Christians have the opportunity for greater intimacy than even he experienced. Out of such intimacy, of course, it is expected that we will be obedient. Walking with him and also walking in him implies obedience. And Hebrews 11.5 makes this explicit, speaking of Enoch. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. 
Pastor Ken talked about how to please God a couple of weeks ago in light of Abel's story. And in Hebrews 11, the focus is on how these Old Testament figures believed what God said and then obeyed him out of that faith. It is in reflection on Enoch's story that the author of Hebrews adds verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is among my favorite verses, and so I can't resist pulling off here for just a moment. The author of Hebrews reads Genesis 5.24, which says, Enoch walked with God, and he sees that as meaning Enoch pleased God. From this, the author deduces that Enoch must have trusted God's word. As he walked with God, surely the Lord must have talked with him, said things to him, And indeed, we actually know one topic of conversation that passed between them, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. Nevertheless, the spirit-empowered author of Hebrews recognized Enoch's faith and Enoch's God-pleasing obedience in the phrase, Enoch walked with God. He reasons with spirit-illumined reasoning. If Enoch walked with God, then he must have pleased God. And if he pleased God, he must have believed whatever God said to him. And if he believed whatever God said to him, he must have acted in obedience to God. And as a reward for that faith and obedience, God transferred him to a different place. And that takes us back to the big question, where'd he go? Where did God take him? As you may know, speculation abounds about Enoch's experience. The Jews seem not to be able to help themselves when it comes to speculating about the tantalizing lack of specificity here. You may have heard of the Book of Enoch. Truly, the books of Enoch. There have been several speculative writings containing narratives of Enoch's alleged adventures with God. Much of that comes from the imaginations of Jewish writers who developed wild traditions and wrote them down to encourage and perhaps entertain their friends. Moses deviates from the drumbeat of death in the genealogy only here. In verse 24, Moses doesn't write, and he died, like we would expect from the pattern. Instead, we read, and he was not, for God took him. And all God's people said, what? (laughs) Took him where? Speculation on this point has multiplied, both among Jews as well as among Christians. But what has appeared obvious to most Christians is probably right. God took him to heaven. After all, in the previous two sections of Genesis, there are only two created realms, heaven and earth. And in the context of an intimate relationship, we're probably right to assume that God would take him to himself. But there's resistance to this obvious conclusion. What would it mean for a human to be taken alive to heaven? We have records of visions of heaven given to quite a few prophets in Scripture, and we might have one place where Paul claims to possibly have been taken to heaven himself temporarily, but there there he seems to be unclear on whether he actually went anywhere or not, whether it was in the body or out of the body, as he put it. For Enoch, it since this seems to have been a permanent relocation, should we view Enoch as having been raptured, the way Christians expect to be raptured when Jesus returns? That is to say, should we assume that Enoch was transformed and given a glorified body? Perhaps at this point, 
it is important to remember the rest of what Hebrews 11 says that applies to each person named in the list, including Enoch. In Hebrews 11, 39, and 40, we read, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Thus, wherever God took Enoch, he still awaits the resurrection, just as we do. I think it would be wise for us to resist the kinds of speculation that so tripped up the Jewish people. Famously, Elijah is the only other person in history who seems to have been spared death. The author of 2 Kings uses the word taken, as Moses did for Enoch, but Elijah was taken with much more fanfare, escorted by fiery horse-drawn chariots and a whirlwind. How do these two live in heaven? What happened to their bodies? These are the kinds of questions the Bible does not answer. However, it's important for us to hold on to what the Bible does say. Enoch and Elijah have not been made perfect. I think that means they have not been glorified and they do not have resurrected bodies. Whatever else we should think about how they live in heaven with God, we must hold on to that. As much speculation as there has been about Enoch, it's amazing how very little the biblical writers referred to him. As we compare what is said about him with what is said about Noah, we can recognize him as a righteous man, and the author of Hebrews highlights his faith and indicates that he pleased God. One other passage refers to him as a prophet, but we will look at that verse in connection with Enoch's son. In verses 25 to 32, we read about the oldest man in the Bible, and then we come to another Lamech who fathered Noah. But with the birth of Methuselah, we see Moses anticipating the judgment and salvation to come through the flood. Take a look at verses 25 to 32. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Enoch named his son Methushelach. That would be a more precise Hebrew pronunciation. The Hebrew word shalach on the end is the verb send. The first part of his name, Methu, might mean man of, which would make his name mean man who is sent. Or Methu could be derived from the Hebrew word for death, so that his name would mean when he dies, it will be sent. Hold that thought for just a moment. There's one more thing we know about Enoch. The brother of Jesus named Jude, and actually his Hebrew name is Judas, Jude, in our Bibles, quoted some words of Enoch. Listen to verses 14 and 15 of the little letter of Jude. 
It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch was a prophet of judgment. Now, Jude says that Enoch was prophesying about these, that is, the false teachers who were seeking to lead believers away in the churches Jude was addressing. And essentially, Jude indicates that Enoch was prophesying about the Lord's final judgment. However, in line with this tone of judgment, we could recognize the naming of Enoch's son as a prophetic message for his own day. Just as Isaiah, for example, named his children in such a way that communicated message of salvation and judgment for the people of Israel of his day, this is Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, Enoch may have named his son in such a way that communicated a message of judgment to his contemporaries. Now, what's even more interesting about Jude's quote is that it comes from one of those speculative Jewish books of Enoch. The text is usually cited as 1 Enoch 1.9. This section of 1 Enoch was likely written originally in either Aramaic or Greek sometime in the 200s B.C. It was widely circulated and translated and became very popular among the Jews. And over the next several centuries, further writings would be added under the name Enoch so that we now know of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Enoch. These were all surely written by different authors at different times in different places, and yet there is a general consistency of theme among the three books that holds them all together. I'm certain that Jesus and his family would have known some of these stories, and it's quite plausible that they would have grown up reading them. It is only this one verse out of the whole book, and it's huge and long. It's way longer than any of the books of the Bible except the book of Psalms. I'm certain they would have read them, and it's only this one verse that gets quoted in the New Testament, although Jude and 2 Peter do seem to refer to it. We'll talk more about that perhaps next Sunday uh, in other places. The books of Enoch largely claim to detail Enoch's visionary experiences, which do have a focus on God's judgment against the wicked. The overall theology and worldview expressed in the books does not fit with biblical theology, particularly in the way it explains the presence of evil in this world. Rather than pinning the blame on Adam, Enoch's writings largely blame the disobedient angels. We should view the books of Enoch as legendary expansions of the biblical figure named Enoch. So what do we then do with a New Testament writer, Jude, providing a clear, direct quote from this legendary literature. Well, I suppose it would be akin to someone recognizing a true historical fact embedded in a piece of historical fiction. Or perhaps a better analogy would be a historian recognizing a true historical fact about ancient British history embedded in the legends of King Arthur. Thus Jude guided by the Holy Spirit, affirms the truth of one statement and maybe some other ideas along the way attributed to ancient Enoch, the seventh from Adam. 
It is quite possible that many of Enoch's announcements of judgment were passed down to Noah and then through Noah's descendants. Even as the legends about Enoch expanded the story imaginatively, there was a kernel of truth highlighting his prophetic announcements of judgment. With his naming of Methuselah, we may perhaps get a biblical glimpse from Moses of the kind of focus Enoch had on the coming of God's judgment. If Methuselah means when he dies it will be sent, then the it likely refers to God's judgment. And whereas in the books of Enoch, his prophecies are very much focused on a future fiery judgment that will consume all the ungodly of the earth, the naming of his son could very well have been foreshadowing a more imminent watery judgment that would consume all the ungodly of the earth. If we take this genealogy in Genesis 5 as a chrono genealogy and attend carefully to the years, we find that Methuselah dies in the year the flood begins. Thus, Methuselah's name serves as a portent of judgment, but his son Lamech will name his son with hope of salvation. Methuselah names his son Lamech, which is the same name as the seventh from Adam through Cain's line, the murderer of chapter 4. The Hebrew is actually Lemek, as we talked about last week. We looked at how this might be a kind of play on words on the Hebrew word for king. The only guesses I've seen for an actual meaning of the word Lemek is warrior or conqueror or something like that. And that doesn't tell us much in this context. But Moses again breaks the pattern of this genealogy with Lamech by quoting some of his words when he names his son Noah. Look again at verse 29. Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. What's interesting about this statement is that it seems to refer quite specifically to the wording of the curse of the ground that the Lord communicated to Adam, recorded for us in Genesis 3. This is evidence that the very words of the curse had been passed down through the generations, and Lamech could still quote the words. All the generations had certainly been experiencing the curse, but Lamech's words indicate that they had an understanding of why life was as hard as it was. And Lamech's hope for relief suggests that he is also looking back to the promise expressed in the hearing of Adam as the curse of the serpent, the promise of a future male descendant of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, destroy the spiritual entity that empowered the serpent in the garden, and by implication, would overturn the curse itself. Lamech hopes that the promised male descendant would be his son Noah. How unlike Cain's descendant Lamech is Seth's descendant Lamech. As one writer puts it, one Lamech hoped for rest, the other boasted of revenge. Lamech makes this statement as the reason he names his son Noah. Moses, the writer here, is going to play with Noah's name from several different angles. His name literally means rest. Lamech names his son Noah, which means rest. But then he explains the reasoning for naming him with a different Hebrew word, a word that is well translated here as relief. It could be translated comfort or consolation or something like that. The familiar Old Testament name of Nehemiah comes from this word translated relief. To make the pun... In Hebrew, Lamech takes the two consonants, N and H. You can see it in English, and Noah, N and H. 
of Noah and connects his name with a verb that means relief or comfort made up of the consonants N and H and M. Nevertheless, relief and rest are really parallel ideas. They fit together quite well. As has often been observed, the relief or rest Lamech hopes for doesn't come to pass, at least as he expects. Commentator Kenneth Matthews summarizes the point well. This alleviation, relief, does not come about as Lamech wishes, however, for the relief comes only after a calamitous flood. The relief, then, is righteous Noah's role in initiating a new era as the new Adam who perpetuates the family blessing by virtue of God's covenant mercies. Or, as Jonathan Sarfati writes, Lamech recognized that his son would have a key role in history, but it wasn't comfort for the vast majority of humanity whom God would drown in the flood. The comfort was in rescuing a remnant on the ark. Lamech would die five years before the flood came, but he would have at least seen the construction of the ark begin, most likely. Perhaps Noah could explain to him what the Lord told him, and so he could understand before he died what relief would look like through his son Noah. It would only be Noah and his wife and Noah's three sons and their wives who would survive God's coming judgment. Moses concludes his genealogy here with the death of Lamech, the birth of Noah, and an announcement of Noah's three sons. We will obviously return to Noah and his sons, but let's attend to verse 32 for just a moment. Notice that Noah is the first man mentioned who doesn't have other sons and daughters. Later in Genesis 6, Moses will specify that Noah had three sons. They are named in this order, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But this is certainly not their birth order. That would be Japheth, Shem, then Ham, 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 whatever Pronounce it however you want it. Shem, shame, will be the son who carries on the line of the offspring of the woman. His genealogy will be sketched in Genesis 11 all the way to Abram. As so often in Genesis, God chooses one of the younger sons to carry on the line of promise. Shem's name means name. (laughs) And so it shall be that God will make his name great just as he promises to do for Shem's descendant, Abram. From Shem, we get terms like Semitic and Semite, Shemite, Shemitic, referring to descendants of Shem, Shem. Ham's name probably means heated or hot. We'll consider whether that has any relevance for what we learn about Ham later in the story. Perhaps it just means he was born in the summertime. Japheth will later be connected with the Hebrew word translated enlarge as part of Noah's blessing of him. His descendants will spread out far and wide to the coastlands, as we'll learn in Genesis 10. Or maybe he was just a really big baby. The next major section of Genesis will begin in chapter 6, verse 9, and it will be focused on Noah. We won't get the expected conclusion with regard to Noah until the last verse of chapter 9, where we'll read about Noah's death at 950 years old. Through Noah and his family, the Lord will provide a new beginning for the world, a new beginning for humanity. There is hope of salvation, even while death reigns. So what do we take away from this passage? We've seen evidence of King Death's reign, but we've also seen how one man was spared from death, 
And we see how Noah spells hope for the possibility of salvation from death as well. It's interesting how we have euphemisms for death. We talk about someone, being, someone passing away rather than saying, she died. Ironically, the New Testament turns this around and speaks of our passing away from death to life. The message of the genealogy of Genesis 5 is not everyone dies, for there was a notable exception. Number seven in this list. Author Mitchell Chase observes, Enoch's rapture did say something important, however, about death and God's power. God can close the mouth of the grave whenever he wants for whomever he wants, a truth stemming from his cosmic lordship. For those who walk with God, like Enoch, death doesn't get the last word. Now, of course, having a relationship with God doesn't exempt us from physical death, as we all know too well. But Jesus' words must color the way we think about death. In John 5, 24, Jesus told a bunch of Jewish men who wanted to kill him, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus later told a grieving Martha in John eleven twenty five and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He then asked her directly, do you believe this? To walk with God is to believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ and you have passed away from death into life, eternal life. Jesus here implies that we are all living in a state of death. We are all dead men walking. Or to borrow Paul's imagery, we are all living under the reign of King Death. But his reign has been broken. Jesus brings people out of his realm, giving eternal life to everyone who believes in him. In Romans 6.13, Paul describes believers as those who have been brought from death to life. Throughout Romans 6 to 8, really starting back in Romans 5.12, but all the way through chapter 8, Paul personifies death as a terrible king, a dictator who reigns over all people. But in this verse, he doesn't use the normal word for death. Instead, he speaks of corpses, dead bodies. He's describing resurrection. Literally, the phrase could be translated, those who have been made alive out from among the corpses. This is what God does for those He saves. He makes us alive together with Christ. Jesus said that it is those who hear His word and trust God who sent Him who receive eternal life. So are you listening? Are you listening to His word this morning? Will you believe that He can rescue you from death, deliver you from the judgment you deserve? Even though you may die physically, Jesus is resurrection. Jesus is eternal life. When he returns, you will rise. The genealogy of Genesis 5 proclaims the universal reign of death. But the true story of Enoch shows how God can overrule King Death. We need to react to this, respond to this. So I'd like to invite the musicians to join me on stage.
to help us sing. We'll sing a classic hymn. Many of you will know it. Wonderful grace of Jesus. And sing it in response to what you've heard here this morning. Jesus himself submitted to king death. He came under his reign so that he could defeat death. He promises to return to this world and some of his followers will be awaiting his arrival. May I gently appeal to you as Christians this morning? Don't assume that you're going to die. Death is not inevitable. Jesus' return is inevitable. Can we grasp hold of that and believe the truth of that? Remember Jesus' parables about His return. He calls us to be expectant. He could return today. He calls us to be faithful. When He returns, He wants to find us doing what He's commanded us to do. We who walk with God We who walk in Christ have already passed out of death. We no longer abide in death's domain. Thus, if we die as Christians, it is gain. Paul said it is far better to depart and be with Christ. But he also said that it is not ideal. It's not ideal to be unclothed. Rather, instead, perhaps we could say it like this, it is best, far better than better, it's best to be further clothed, overclothed, referring to resurrection, the rapture, the transformation of living people when Christ returns. That's our hope. That's what we fix our eyes on. Be of good courage, fellow Christian. Like Enoch, let us walk by faith and not by sight. Let us believe his promises of salvation and his warnings of judgment. Let us make it our aim to please the Lord. Stand with me and sing like you believe this is true.